Bonjour, hello, and welcome to Close Up on Canada, the podcast from the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. I'm your host, Daniel Bellin. This season, we are talking about how Canada is facing the future in an age of global uncertainty. Today, we look at how Canada has fared during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially compared to other countries. For many months, we have watched cities, regions and provinces respond to the devastating consequences of this pandemic. As the country begins to reopen and restrictions continue to be lifted, what lessons can we draw from the last 18 months? We are pleased today to be joined by a true expert in the field, Dr. Donald Shepard. Dr. Shepard is chair of the McGill University Department of Microbiology and Immunology and the founding director of the McGill Interdisciplinary Initiative in Infection and Immunity, MI4. An infectious disease clinician and researcher with more than 150 scientific publications, he draws on his experience as a scientific advisor on the Canadian Therapeutic Task Force to inform and educate healthcare providers and the public during the COVID-19 pandemic. And today, we are here to talk to him to understand what's going on in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, Don, and thank you very much for joining us today. Bonjour, Daniel. It's very, very good to be here. I'm going to start off today with what might be a very complicated question. Across the country, we have witnessed different waves of the pandemic at different times. And in the context of our decentralized federal system, we have seen different government responses. Can we actually assess the way we as a country have addressed COVID-19? More precisely, is it possible to give Canada an overall COVID grade? And if so, how would you grade us as a country? You really do want to start with the easy questions, don't you? Well, I'm a teacher at heart, I'm a professor, so I, I'm not sure that I believe in assigning single grades. I like to look at evolution over the course of the, the course. So I think that, that we actually evolved a lot as a country. I think our initial response, I'm gonna have to say we started out with a solid C. We had that large outbreak in Quebec. We allowed the virus to get into long-term care facilities. We had shortages of supplies. We really weren't as ready as we thought we were. But most improved student, I think we're now bumping up close to an A. So I think our overall grade comes in at a pretty solid B plus. And I think Canada's really been the, the tortoise versus the hare. We've been the tortoise. We started out slow, but look at our success in the vaccine rollout. I personally find it very heartening to see Canada leading the world in vaccine confidence numbers, leading the world in the number of people that have received the first dose, and seeing people lining up and clamoring for the opportunity to receive the vaccine and the supplies actually rolling in as promised to deliver vaccination to all Canadians in as equitable a fashion as possible. It's heartening to understand that we improved over time rather than the other way around, but that's for, of course, the country as a whole. If you look at specific provinces, can you say that overall there was a general pattern of improvement across the board over time? 
I think so. I think it's been a, a very different experience across Canada. We have the provinces that started out with very little disease when Quebec was in its the throes of wave one. And then we're sort of taken aback when it actually came to them for wave two and wave three. And they realized that they weren't actually as uh, immortal, perhaps, or as well defended as they thought they were. So I think each province went through its own personal growth phase, some of them earlier, some of them later. But I think everyone's been humbled by the fact to realize that the virus really did not respect political or geographical boundaries. And we all have that shared lived experience. But I do think that there's one strength of our federation that's been revealed when you actually look at what's happened across the country. And, and it's kind of the silver lining to our confederation. At first glance, you look at the shared responsibilities between the federal and provincial territorial governments in healthcare, and you think, geez, this is a recipe for disaster when you come to a pandemic. And indeed, we had lots of growing pains with data sharing and responsibilities. But that diversity can be strength. And with the number of provinces and the number of different approaches, in some ways, Canada had the opportunity to be a living lab and to, for different provinces to explore different ways to deal with the pandemic. And then to have the opportunity for the provinces that were lagging behind to pivot and adopt best practices that had been rolled out in their neighbors. So our, our diversity offered us the chance to try out different styles of approaches to the pandemic and then to learn from the successes and the failures. So I suppose we can say that we are getting ready ahead of future pandemics, right? Absolutely. I don't think anybody now on earth believes this was the last pandemic. Yes. And, and so you're really passionate about this issue. You've been researching in infectious diseases and immunity for many years. Can you tell us a bit more, maybe on a, a personal note here, how you got into this field and, and what experiences have been helpful to you when facing this uh, recent pandemic? So the truth is, I started my training as a physician during the last great pandemic. So I actually did my internal medicine and early infectious disease training in the early 1990s in the middle of the global AIDS pandemic. And I say AIDS because that was the point where we had no therapies, where young men who were the same age as I was when I was doing my internship and residency were dying every day in the hospital before my eyes. And I really became fascinated with how this disease could come out of nowhere and change society in so many ways in terms of, of just our health aspects, but all the social and, and economic knock-on effects and how it really changed our attitudes towards infectious diseases. But perhaps more importantly, I actually went to San Francisco to get trained as an HIV physician and landed there the year that the new drugs hit the market the year that highly anti, uh, active antiretroviral therapy really rolled out. And I remember a Tuesday, literally a Tuesday, when I prescribed those drugs for the first time, and it was the end of the time of AIDS. It was when my patients literally got up off their deathbed, went back to work, went back to the gym. It was the most incredible experience, and being in San Francisco was the most incredible place to experience it. That was the moment that I became a true believer in biomedical research. And I'll point out one other interesting thing. That 
experience of going from AIDS to the, the so-called long-term cure we have now with drugs was a 10-year journey. It took 10 years to align society, governments, drug agencies, and science to find those drugs. Look at what we did with COVID. We fast-tracked from 10 to one year. You think this is something that could be replicated for other viruses, or there is something specific about COVID that made that easier, or is just progress over the last 30 years that we are just getting better at this overall? I think it's both, obviously. There's no question that HIV is a much more difficult virus than COVID, than SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. There is a technical barrier there, absolutely fair. But it's not just that. Our uh, general increase in our scientific capacity, our increase in preparation scientifically in order to be ready for pandemics has really, really paid off. You know, people always say, I, I'm, I'm nervous about these vaccines because you can't develop a vaccine in 18 months. How could that have happened? Well, the answer is, of course, we didn't develop a vaccine in 18 months. For years, people have been pre-preparing these vaccine platforms so that when the virus came, all the heavy lifting work in preparing the basic scaffold, the framework, had already been done, and we just needed to plug in elements from the new virus. So that's where the preparation really paid off. And I think that will hold us in good stead moving forward. Now that we have these mRNA platforms up and running and we've built capacity for them. So now if we are thinking about lessons that we can draw from the current pandemic, we need to think about the, the challenges we are going to face in the future. What are some of the main challenges that we have faced in Canada since the beginning of the pandemic? Well, obviously, there's a lot of them, but two of them sort of come immediately to the front of mind. And the first follows on what we were just talking about, and that is capacity. So when you think back to that first wave, what was in the newspaper headlines? PPE, reagents or the ingredients to do the PCR testing, masks, ventilators, ICU beds. How could we make vaccines when we had no vaccine plants? How could we make therapeutic antibodies? I mean, we had a company, Abcellera, that developed a monoclonal antibody to treat COVID-19 and had to license it to Eli Lilly because we didn't have the capacity in this country to develop it. So I think we learned clearly that the supply chains and the biomanufacturing capacity for healthcare emergencies are really integral to our security as a nation. It's not just about stockpiles because stockpiles can be burnt through, but it's about having the capacity inside our borders to replenish those stockpiles when restrictions come down, when plants close in China and Northern Italy because there's COVID outbreaks. We need to have domestic capacity and domestic stockpiles that are safe and secure behind our, our own borders. It's actually a matter of national security. So you mentioned two challenges. What's the second one? Well, the second one's my favorite, and that's why I'm here talking to you today. I think it's all about communication. You don't have to uh, be someone who's a news junkie to realize that communication has driven a lot of what we've seen at the public health level. There have been challenges with messaging science on a completely new virus. How do you explain to the general public that our knowledge evolves, that we actually have to stand up in front of people and say, last Tuesday, I thought this. But today, I know it's wrong, and I think something else. But you really should trust me about this. And next Tuesday, I won't be up here telling you that that's wrong also. 
that fine balance between being clear and transparent and explaining the limits of our knowledge, but still providing the public with enough confidence to follow our understanding of the science at any given moment in time. That's a real challenge. And we've seen successes and failures. Unfortunately, some of the failures have generated the antithesis to good communication, and that's the misinformation campaigns. The microchips in the vaccine, the COVID deniers, the people who talked about empty hospitals, all of these sometimes very, very sophisticated misinformation uh, campaigns that have appeared on social media and the internet. I think we've all recognized the power of non-traditional media and also the necessity to message things in a culturally accessible and understandable context. The scientists who got up there and started using words like PCR, RNA, retrovirus, and transcription translation lost their audiences in two seconds flat. That's not how the public wants to hear things. They're sophisticated. They do have excellent science literacy, but we have to explain things in ways that are easily accessible, understandable, and have well-defined limits as to the limits of our knowledge. Very interesting. So considering these two challenges and others, how can we as a country be better prepared for the next pandemic? Because we know there will be one. Well, I think the key thing here is really to do a good postmortem and figure out what we did wrong. And there's many efforts that are ongoing at the level of the Public Health Agency of Canada, the level of the Auditor General, at the level of many public health associations to look at what worked, what didn't, what were we ready for, and what weren't. The, the, the real issue, though, for me is we need a comprehensive plan. We had one but we didn't realize how complicated things were going to be. We obviously couldn't foresee some of the challenges, but COVID-19 has given us the best road test we could ever hope for. And so I think we need to revisit and develop a comprehensive pandemic and health emergency plan at the level of the federal and provincial governments. We have to go through war gaming and practicing on a regular basis. This is not a, a something we put in a binder, stick on the shelf and let it gather dust. This is something that annually we have to have some creative college student who's going to come up with the one virus, the one emergency that no one's thought of, game out a scenario and do it and do it as though our lives depended on it. Because if they don't now, they will in the future. So we can learn from our mistakes and learn from uh, the things we have done, including the good things uh, over the pandemic. We can uh, learn from different provincial and territorial experiences, maybe at the municipal level, but what about other countries? You know, if you had to send, or if you had to travel somewhere or send some public health experts somewhere to actually uh, uh, draw lessons from the pandemic and, and bring that back to Canada, where would you go or where would you send them? So, you know, the obvious answer here is I'd send them to Israel and I'd send them to the UK, right? Isn't that what everybody would expect me to say? But I'm not sure that the only way to learn lessons is to look at successes. I think it's also very important to look at failures and to look at challenges and to look at uh, where things didn't work for two reasons. Number one, there may be lessons learned for our own country. We may find ourselves in similar situations that we did not foresee. And seeing how people dealt with disastrous type events with limited resources is a good way for us to make our disaster plans for when we do run out of resources or when something unforeseen comes up. So I would send people to Brazil. I would send people to India. 
But there's a second reason for that. The other reason is, I think that the other thing the pandemic has taught us is that the old adage, think global, act local, is wrong when it comes to pandemics. You need to think globally and act globally. It's not an accident that when we look at the original names all of these variants were given, they were from countries where there were high levels of transmission. The variants emerged in places where viral replication happened unchecked and therefore the virus had the chance to mutate. So by not taking care of the rest of the world, ironically, we're creating a situation where more mutants and more variants can appear that could potentially break through our vaccine immunity. And I would like for us to develop a more global view of healthcare and global health, where we recognize that it's just as important to vaccinate people in India as it is to vaccinate people in Montreal. So what about, say, organizations like the World Health Organization? It was criticized a lot during the, the pandemic. The U.S. even opted out under Trump. Now they are back. Do we need more of these organizations or invest more in the World Health Organization? I think the World Health Organization has a very clear role to play, but I think what we need is actually not more organizations, but to strengthen the existing organization. WHO has always been crippled by a lack of resources and the fact that it's obliged to operate through its national partners, which really restricts much of what it can do. And we saw those challenges. So I would like to see a tighter, more empowered WHO and a clearer set of its roles and responsibilities that are that are within a mandate it can actually achieve. We don't need the WHO to declare a pandemic. That's not really going to help us. But what we do need is a WHO that can act as a clearinghouse for best practices and that can help be involved in ensuring that we get equitable distribution of resources like vaccines. And some of what we're seeing now with COVAX and other initiatives to vaccinate around the world, to me, that's really where the bang for the buck is. Well, thank you very much, Don, for a really fascinating conversation and also for your work here at McGill and beyond during this pandemic. You clearly have a wealth of experience and expertise, and we are really glad to have you here at McGill. That was Donald Shepard, director of MI4, the McGill Interdisciplinary Initiative in Infection and Immunity. To learn more about the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, our academic programs, and our public event, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash misc. You can follow us on Twitter at MISCCAN, M-I-S-C-C-A-N. And of course, you can subscribe for more episodes of Close Up on Canada. Thank you to our producer, Blair Elliott, and the staff at MISC, and to you for listening. Merci et à la prochaine.